You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Alicia Garza, co-founder of Black Lives Matter and author of the new book, The Purpose of Power, joined the Washington Post to discuss what it means to do the work of organizing a movement and creating change. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Robin Gavon, senior critic at large for the Washington Post, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I am delighted to have Alicia Garza with me today. Alicia is one of the co-founders of the Black Lives Matter, and she's a leading voice on contemporary race issues, civil rights, and police reform. She also launched the Black Futures Lab, which is an organization that works with advocacy groups to promote policies that support Black communities. Her first book, The Purpose of Power, How We Come Together When We Fall Apart, was released today. Alicia, thank you so much for joining me, and congratulations on your book. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to join you today. Well, I wanted to to start with um, a point that you make in your book, which is the importance of controlling the narrative and not allowing your story to be lost to uh, essentially cultural amnesia. Mm. With those two things in mind, what was it that sparked the idea for you to sit down and write what is really a memoir at your ripe young age? (laughs) You know, I, I was skeptical of trying to write a memoir, and I think you're right that there's still a lot of life left. Um, to me, part of why I was inspired to write this book is I've been organizing in Black communities for 20 years and never really took a break to step back and um, really parse out, you know, what are some of the key lessons that are necessary in order to keep moving this movement forward? And, you know, today we are in the middle of the most important election cycle in a generation. And this is the second time now that our movement is really being used as a political football um, in a contest that is going to have impact on the lives of millions of Americans. And so for me, this was an opportunity to zoom out, to really uh, invest in culling some of the lessons that I've learned and that I'm still learning and things that I'm unlearning that I think make successful and effective movements. Every day somebody asks me about how they can get involved or they ask me, you know, how I keep going. And I wanted to put all of that into one place so that it could be a toolkit for folks to take with them on this journey of making this country uh, better for everyone. And what I hope is that this book can inspire people who, you know, have been involved for a long time or certainly politically acute and politically active, but maybe feeling a little cynical about our chances here. And I wanted to have this book be accessible to people who are just now looking around and saying, oh my gosh, how did we get here and how do we get out of it? So that's really what the book is about and that's what inspired me to write it. Well, one of the things that I find so intriguing about the book is that often, Um, when we start talking about leaders of movements, uh, those who inspire um, others to act, that they can get flattened out. They can become very sort of two-dimensional. And you really sort of give people at least a sense of sort of the three-dimensional person that you are. 
And I mean, I was fascinated to know that you really sort of grew up in Tiburon in Marin County in the Bay Area um, and that, um, you know, you went to a predominantly white high school that you really were, are steeped in sociology and anthropology. I'm curious how all of those things sort of merged to, um, to sort of shape the kind of act activist that you have eventually become. That's a great question. So, you know, in zooming out a little bit and reflecting on what I think makes effective movements for the 21st century and beyond, I had to actually start with reflecting for myself on how it was that I became active and what kept me active. And it's true, I think I did have a pretty unique experience uh, growing up in a relatively wealthy community for part of my life, mostly around white people. And I just, in reflection, I realized that, you know, growing up, um, my even though my experience was very unique, I think a lot of people can relate to it. I often, as one of a few Black people in a place, I often felt alone. I often felt isolated. I often felt like the things that were happening to me, the things I was experiencing were only happening to me and that nobody else could relate. But the fact of the matter is that once I found a community of people who maybe didn't have exactly the same experience as me, but certainly um, could relate to feeling alone and feeling isolated and looking for people that they could connect with, that that is actually where power lies. And if we take that to look at what's happening in this country right now, I think the same is true. There are a lot of people who feel like they're the only ones dealing with the things that they're dealing with. And they're looking for a movement that can help them be powerful in their everyday life. And movements fundamentally are actually about, you know, moving more power to more people. And the trick here, though, is that we have to figure out how to bring people together who have some common experiences, but maybe also uh, different conditions that they're living in and have people come together and act together for change that we all agree on. And so for me, my experience and placing it in a historical and political context, I really hoped would be able to help other people place themselves in this moment, do reflection on you know, what was shaping them and what continues to shape them, and then to find people like them who uh, want to see change and have those folks come together to create a plan and execute it. That's what we've done with this movement. And certainly uh, it has to grow bigger than us and it has to be something that is adopted by everyone. You know, one of the things that's so fascinating is your ability to take things that um, were personal or that happened specifically to you, but and to also be able to see the ways in which um, your experience might have been unique, but and also universal. And that's leading me to this anecdote that you tell in your book uh, when you're, I think about 17, you're in high school and you are with a friend and you encounter a police officer when the two of you are sort of smoking a little pot. And it's actually, I wasn't sure how this story was going to end. And right. you actually end up having a relatively positive ex encounter with this police officer. And yet you could take that and sort of detail the ways in which your experience 
uh, informed the way that you also understood the criminal justice system. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. It's one of my favorite passages in the book, so thank you for highlighting it. You know, the fact that you started off by saying you weren't sure how the story was going to end is actually pretty telling about our criminal justice system. And frankly, when it comes to Black communities in this country, uh, you know, too often the way that that story ends is not the way that mine ended. It usually ends in death or it ends in jail or prison. And that's the problem is that these systems, like our criminal system, were designed actually to function exactly in that way. What happens is that there are rules in every sector of our society that essentially uh, are rigged. They're rigged against our communities. They either overpopulate us in prisons and jails across the nation, um, or they track us right into uh, you know academic tracks that don't. Uh, provide for success in a particular economic context. There's so many ways in which it's not just personalities, right, or goodwill that shapes the lives of our communities, but it's policies and practices that continue to um, feed an unhealthy pattern of Black people disproportionately uh, being impacted almost the most severely by the disparities that exist in our society. In my case, I was sitting in a BMW 325i in Marin County with a child prodigy who was blonde haired and blue eyed. And the address on my license uh, reflected a wealthy community. And certainly if all of those things had not aligned, my situation would have been very, very different. Uh, and that is what I'm trying to lift up here is that, you know, these systems and these rules it's not a function of individual people. It's not a function of good or bad people. It's actually a function of systems that are designed intentionally uh, to criminalize and punish Black people and people of color, especially in relationship to the criminal and, system. And Alicia, I just wanted to interrupt for a quick second because it's also particularly notable that um, sort of the violation in this story had to do with marijuana, which sure. is something that is so contentious in terms of who uses it, but also who is, um, you know, criminalized for using it. And sure. that was another part of this that was really striking. Can you sort of explain like what was going on in the, in the car? <laughs> sure. Well, uh, first, let me say that the context of this, right, is that I was in a car uh, you know, being a kid at 17 years right. old. And, you know, we had said we were doing homework, but really we were sitting in our car and smoking weed. And, you know, this was a point in, in the nighttime, right? And here we were just being kids and doing what kids do. Yeah. And, you know, in the book, I actually talk about the fact that I was raised in the era of the war on drugs, where there was disproportionate sentencing for crack cocaine versus powder cocaine and how that impacted black communities. That is a example of a rigged rule. Uh, and in this case, you're absolutely right. When we're talking about marijuana, uh, it's really an extension of that pattern of criminalizing behaviors uh, um, and certainly 
attaching those behaviors to particular communities. What we know is that, you know, white people and black people smoke marijuana at the same rates. But then, of course, when we look at the criminal system and we look at who is being punished for that, uh, that there is a huge disproportionate impact on black communities, meaning black people are punished more often and more severely for smoking weed than white people are. That is also an example of a rigged rule. And so, you know, what I tried to do in the book here is use my own story to also talk about, right, how um, there not only are there disparities, but also what can influence or impact those disparities. You know, to me, a system should work equally for everyone. The same rules should be applied to everyone. And, you know, what I found in that particular case was that the, the same rules were not being applied to me. And that had to do with race, but it certainly very much also had to do with class and gender. And had I been a young black man in that car, I, I would have been treated incredibly differently than I was. So, and had I been with another black person, also another black man, we would have been treated differently than we were. And that's not how our system should work. And that is why we build movements. We build movements to, to level the playing field. We build movements to transform the way that power operates. And in the case of this movement, we build movements to make sure that punishment is not an economy, right? That, that actually, sure, we should hold people accountable when harm is, is caused. But at the same time, we shouldn't make punishment and economy the way it is now. One of the great things about the book is that you put so much of uh, the movement into context and you define a lot of uh, the, the verbiage that we uh, sort of bandy about when we talk about movements. And you, you, know, you, you discuss sort of the civil rights movement and you discuss um, those leaders who sort of came after that and the rooting of so much uh, uh, protest against racial injustice as being within the church. Can you talk a little bit about how now sort of the movement that is considered the Black Lives Matter movement, um, you know, speaks to these times and to this generation in a way that is, you know, very specific, but is also sort of part of that ongoing sort of transformation of what movements have to do? Mm -hmm. Well, all movements are rooted in time, place, and conditions. And I talk about that in the book. And, you know, for the last period of civil rights, and there were many, um, the last period that we experienced prior to this one um, was actually very much rooted in the Black church. And leaders came out of Black churches and um, ended up being the brokers and negotiators of power. Also, very much men were given a privileged place um, inside of movements. How people looked and how they showed up um, was also uh, determined by a strategy for those movements, which was essentially, you know, just to be a little bit crass about it, that if we look good, if we look like we deserve respect, if we look like we deserve dignity, then we will achieve it. You know, today's movements, and not just Black Lives Matter, but I think if you look in the climate justice movement, if you look in the economic justice movement, right, all of these movements, I think, look differently than they would have 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and even 50 or 60 years ago. And that's because our time, our place, and our conditions have changed. No longer, right, is it um, considered uh, acceptable 
right, to not have women in leadership. Certainly women are still deeply underrepresented in all positions of power, but now people are asking questions about why. That is a different set of political conditions than those we were dealing with 60 years ago, where it was expected, right, that women were not in positions of power and nobody questioned why. Uh, and so the point that I wanna make here, and the point that I make in the book, is that it's important for us to not hearken back to, <laughs> to a time that no longer reflects the conditions of our society. And frankly, it was those movements of 50 and 60 years ago that paved the way for leadership to look so different in our movements. It's also paved the way for us to reimagine what movements can look like and how they can function in a way that they wouldn't have been able to 50 or 60 years ago. That's why they built movements then, right? So, uh, you know, as we project forward, I do think it's important for us to be mindful of, you know, always searching for the next Martin Luther King Jr. When frankly, I do, I think leadership today looks more like Lena Waithe or Laverne Cox or Ava DuVernay, right? Or Angelica Ross. Uh, it more aptly reflects the diversity and complexity of our communities. And that complexity and that complexity being visible was, was hard fought and certainly a, a, a worthy achievement of, of movements prior to us. Now we have to bring that forward into the next generation. So before we go to um, some questions that we have from the audience, I wanted to also just sort of ask you a little bit about um, the election, which is coming up in, where are we now? 12 days, I think, something somewhere around there. Um, <laughs> and the idea of, one, having to sort of deal with the powers that be, whoever those powers might be, and, um, you know, sort of choosing um, who you uh, align yourself with. And sometimes those things can at odds. I know you sort of discussed this a little bit in a conversation that you had recently uh, with the rapper Ice Cube, and it, it's the idea of who do you align yourself with versus how do you achieve your goals in sort of the halls of power. Um, how are you feeling about the election these days? <laughs> You know, um, today on this Tuesday, I'm feeling motivated <laughs> and inspired. At this hour. <laughs> I mean, look, this is going to be one of the most consequential elections in a generation. And what I know is that already millions of people are voting and have voted. And from what I understand, this election will have the highest turnout in the history of this nation. So that inspires me and makes me hopeful because I think what it indicates is that people are paying attention and that people are taking their protest into the polls. And that is important because elections are a organizing terrain that too many movements leave on the table. And what I always say, and I get this from my mom, is that you know anything you leave on the table, you're leaving for someone else to eat. And most likely somebody who is being opportunistic is going to take what you've left and try to use it for their own agenda. And so for me, the way that I feel about this election is we need to get through it and we need to do what we gotta do. I dropped off my mail-in ballot yesterday. I demanded my sticker. I was so proud of it. Right? <laughs> going on this week, I was like, I am making time to do this. 
And there are black women like me across this nation that are doing exactly the same thing, trying to hold their families together, trying to make sure that they can keep a job and keep a roof over their head, and they're making sure that they're going to be a part of the political process. I think black folks across the nation are saying no more decisions should be made about us without us. Now, with that being said, I talk a lot in the book about you know, how voting can be a movement, but I also talk about some of the failures of both parties to address adequately or even at all the concerns that our communities have. You know, My organization, the Black Futures Lab, we work to make Black communities powerful in politics. We conducted the largest survey of Black people in America in 155 years. We learned a lot about the things important to Black folks. We developed a Black agenda for 2020. 60,000 Black voters have signed on to that agenda, and they're using it as they're making decisions up and down the ballot. The most important part of that process was that we heard most frequently that nobody ever asks us what we care about, what we experience every day, and what we want to see for our futures. And that does not bode well for a vibrant, functioning democracy. So we've got work to do. We have to keep pushing these parties to make sure that they're not just using us symbolically, but that there is some substance in relationship to the agenda that they will be organized around, not just for four years, but indefinitely. Well, one of the, the first questions, and by the way, I should say that um, these questions are coming from um, a group that was invited called Power to Fly. And it's a diverse group of professional women in tech, sales, marketing, and other industries. And one of the first questions is from Patricia McCluskey of New York. Uh, and it sort of gets to the idea that uh, elections matter. What do you see as the impact of the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court? Oh, this is a big <laughs> one. So I'll, I'll try to keep it short so we can get to the rest of them. Um, it would be devastating. Essentially, what it means is that there would be a conservative majority on the Supreme Court and not just, you know, uh, you know, conservative liberal or Republican Democrat, Democrat, but extreme conservative, which is basically uh, the administration that's running this country right now. She has incredibly extreme views about women, about LGBT people, about black folks, and she would be making decisions in the highest court in the land. So that is a huge consequence. The second consequence, I think, is that, you know, frankly, you know, I'm somebody who supports having more women on the Supreme Court. I want more women. I want more people of color. I want more black folks. I want more immigrants. Right. I want the Supreme Court to reflect the diversity of this nation. But I think that her nomination or her eventual nomination would mean uh, or, or a successful nomination okay, would yeah. mean that we would have representation without substance, and that we cannot afford. Uh, we know that when Clarence Thomas, for example, was appointed to the Supreme Court, it had devastating effects on racial equality in this country. Just because he was a black man does not mean that he was in support of ending racial discrimination. And I think what we've seen from Amy Coney Barrett's uh, uh, legacy is that she too is not interested in ending discrimination against women, ending discrimination against communities that have been left out and left behind. And that has extreme consequences because frankly, uh, people will tout that there are more women on the Supreme Court, but they will not look into the decisions that they're making in relationship to our communities. And that does not benefit any of us. One of the, the other questions we have is from Camilla, I hope I'm saying this correctly, Namor uh, from the United Kingdom. 
what can white women do to be helpful and respectful allies? Mm, important the question. question. <laughs> yeah, always. So, you know, I, I say this a lot in the book that it's important for people to be active and not on other people's behalf, but because um, it makes the world better for you. And uh, what I don't say in the book, but what I do say often is that, you know, one of the things that we have to be willing to do is not only make new mistakes, but not be afraid of making them. And when it comes to white women in particular who are trying to be active in the, in the process of racial justice, you know, often people get deterred because they don't want to make mistakes. They don't want to do the wrong thing. They don't want to say the wrong thing. And that keeps them from doing anything at all. And if what we saw in 2016 was any indicator, we need white women to do a lot of work with each other, um, not for black people and not for other people, but for the sake of making sure that white women right, um, can be a healthy, th healthy, thriving constituency in this country. That means it's going to take work to be able to join together with others who are being uh, left out and left behind. So first things first is get to work. Second thing is, as you're doing that work, don't be afraid to make mistakes because you will. But don't let those mistakes deter you from doing better and being better each time over. So I think we probably have time for two more questions. Uh, this one is from Jenny Trang in California. How can we shift the conversation from what can we do in reaction to what's happening to how do we proactively address the root cause of what's happening? Jenny, that's a great, great question. Mm -hmm. The first thing we have to do is understand the root. And, you know, I am somebody who, uh, you know, has spent years studying the roots of the problems that we face in our society every single day. But because of the stories that were told, both through pop culture, which is how I got a lot of my politics and got politicized, but also through our schools and our education system, so much of the stories about why things function the way that they do are distorted and they are frankly uh, skewed. And the reason for that, right, is that they help preserve the status quo. So for example, I talk in the book about the stories that keep us in the same places that we are, uh, whether it be stories about, you know, pink is for girls and blue is for boys, uh, or whether it be stories about this movement. Uh, there's so many stories that we internalize on our own that skew the actual root causes of what we're facing and dealing with. So the first step is to actually get educated and you can do that by being a part of a movement. The second thing I think is really important for us is to once we understand the root, to keep spreading that gospel everywhere that we possibly can. This administration traffics in lies and disinformation and misinformation. And these days, lies spread faster than the truth. So we have to do our part to make sure that we are upholding accurate information and that we are also challenging those who would distort and lie um, in order to keep power and to, and to move their own agenda. Those agendas are not the agendas of the majority, and we have to fight to make sure that that ends today. And I think this is probably our last question. We'll see. Um, how do you address racism within your own household? That's from mm -hmm. Pocky Savant in Virginia. Mm -hmm. And I don't think she, I don't think it's just for your household, but household, right. one's household. <laughs> well, racism infects every part of our society. 
it infects our laws, it infects our culture, it is everywhere. It is as pervasive as the air that we breathe. And so the first thing that is important is to identify where it exists and how it's able to continue to operate. I don't know exactly what you're dealing with in your household, but I can say that one of the most pervasive barriers to addressing racism anywhere is the notion that race is about personality as opposed to about po uh, policy and politics. And you know that's how we uh, adopt the stories about each other that actually keep us divided rather than bringing us together. So first things first is to identify where is it happening and what is allowing it to persist. What are the stories that you continue to tell either in your household or in your workplace uh, that allow for racism to pervade it? And what are the rules that lock it in place? And then we have to do the hard work of not just dismantling the rules, not just dismantling the stories, but replacing them with new stories and new rules that keep it from flourishing again. That's the hard work, and that's the work that we are going to continue to be doing, uh, I think, for at least another generation. We're making inroads, but we have a lot more work to do, and it starts with each of us. Well, I think that's a lovely note to end on, that uh, it starts with all of us. Thank you very much, Alicia. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.